Welcome to Around the Table, a podcast hosted by Geneva School of Bernie. Please join Academic Dean Dirk Russell as he hosts conversations to foster growth, learning, and connections to the glory of Jesus Christ. Welcome to Around the Table. I'm the host, Dirk Russell. This episode is the second in a three-part series on reading. In the first episode, we talked about some of the basics related to reading and the profound effect reading has on the human brain. Today, we will talk about books, in particular, the importance of reading old books. I'm joined today by the Rhetoric School Humanities faculty. Could each of you introduce yourself and tell us the grade you teach and the time period you study? Uh, I'm Sean Harold. I teach freshman humanities, so that's uh, classical history and literature. I'm Rick Poole. I teach sophomore humanities, and uh, we covered the Middle Ages from uh, 400 to about 1400. My name is Paul Johnson, and I teach uh, junior humanities, which goes from about 1500 to 1919. <laughs> Precisely, 1919. <laughs> All right, I want to begin our discussion. Uh, by reading a portion of a famous essay by C.S. Lewis. It was just, uh, it's called On Reading of Old Books. The essay is published in uh, the book God in the Dock. And he talks here about reading old books. And we're, of course, not going to improve on what C.S. Lewis says, but I want us to discuss what C.S. Lewis says here. So this is what C.S. Lewis says. Every age has its own outlook. It is specially good at certain times of seeing certain truths and specially liable to make certain mistakes. We all therefore need the books that will correct the characteristics, characteristic mistakes of our own period. And that means the old books. None of us can fully escape this blindness, but we shall certainly increase it and weaken our guard against it if we read only modern books. Where they are true, they will give us truths that we half know already. Where they are false, they will aggravate the error with which we are already dangerously ill. The only palliative is to keep the clean sea breeze of the centuries blowing through our minds, and this can be done only by reading old books. Not, of course, that there is any magic about the past. People were no cleverer then than they are now. They made as many mistakes as we, but not the same mistakes. They will not flatter us in the errors we are already committing. And their own heirs, being now open and palpable, will not endanger us. Two heads are better than one, not because either is infallible, but because they are unlikely to go wrong in the same direction. To be sure, the books of the future would be just as good a corrective as the books of the past, but unfortunately we cannot get at them. So I'm curious, your all's thoughts on what Lewis says here. In the, uh, in the discarded image, he riffs on that idea for a pretty good while. And, he, and, and one example, a specific example of that, he said, when we read works written in the Middle Ages, we might be absolutely shocked by their cruelty, their barbarism, the, the physical torture that they would inflict on other people. That shocks us. And he said, if they were to read our books, they would be shocked by our staggering lack of chastity. <laughs> and he said, now imagine how both of us must look to God. Hmm. And, um, but again, I think it's, a, it's, it's essential what he's talking about reading old, the Bible's an old book. 
when you read it, you're going to see things about that culture that may be shocking and barbaric. Lewis says we're not going to be tempted to join them just because we've been given an example. Uh, but you will also see your own culture, your own age, your, your own ideals judged by a, by a past culture and found wanting sometimes. So I think it's in incredibly helpful uh, to me, at not, not just teaching, but just in life to, to read old books because um, I see the mistakes of thought that I'm currently engaged in. I think too with that there, there we need to be our bookshelves need to be eclectic right kind of have this diversity so that yeah we should should we read modern stuff yes should we read the old stuff yes and I think from that we really become a more uh, broadened in our understanding and uh, really as Lewis would say understanding the the world that God has made right he talks about history is uh, written by the finger of God and I think we should do everything we can to know and understand that. And I think reading old books as well as new books really is the best way to do that. Any other thoughts on it? I love how he describes the reading of, of old books uh, as the, the sea breeze. Um, mm -hmm. uh, that is just a great image of sitting on the beach and this refreshing breeze uh, blowing over you. Um, I also came across a quote, it was, it was interesting in, in preparing for this, from Albert Einstein and talking about reading modern versus old. And he said this, someone who reads only newspapers and books of contemporary authors looks to me like an extremely nearsighted person who scorns <laughs> eyeglasses. He is completely dependent on the prejudices and fashions of his times since he never gets to see or hear anything else. Uh, another great word on this idea of having our minds renewed and transformed, having this sea breeze blow over our minds by what we read and reading, reading old books. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of um, another quote actually by Tolkien in The Monsters and the Critics where he's sort of talking about Beowulf and uh, why, why it's good to read Beowulf, which I know you teach. Um, but he says, you know, we, ha we, we have all these stones, and uh, we kind of tend to study the, the actual stones, but um, meaning like the artifacts of the poem. But the, the real purpose of writing the poem to begin with, or in the, in the author's mind, was that um, the stones were part of a, a tower, and from the top of the tower you could see the sea. So like it gave you a vision of something, even even to the person who wrote it, that they they might have seen it as a different thing, that they were seeing something different. And so I think you can kind of try to reconstruct that and see the thing that they saw, hmm. which is interesting because the whole sea breeze thing, like you're right, right. able to see some, you know, hmm. something beyond almost. Hmm. Any, so you all, I teach American history, so I don't teach much in the way of old <laughs> books. Uh, now, I have integrated Plato and Aristotle into the 12th grade curriculum, yes. and that's a big part of it, mm -hmm. is with the seniors being able to have that opportunity of reading old books, mm -hmm. uh, because they're just in a different place and, and ready to, to discuss them. But uh, as, as those who teach old books, uh, have you ever had an experience where maybe a student uh, comes across an idea from reading these old books and they're struck by it. So what, what Lewis 
talks about in theory. Do you have times in class where that's actually happened? Uh, can you share any of those? Uh, it, it happens for me teaching uh, Boethius, the consolation of philosophy. For, for a lot of the sophomores, uh, it's, it's, it's the first weighty philosophic work that they've ever had to chew their way through. And uh, just, just the clarity of thought and the way he arranges his thought and presents everything in this Aristotelian sort of argument um, is an eye-opener for a lot of them. And then, uh, again, with Dante, when we get to the Inferno, he writes so persuasively that a lot of them confuse fiction with this is an authoritative <laughs> work. This, what, what part of the Bible is this from? And they're like, how does he know so much about hell? You know, uh, and Virgil took him. Yeah, there. Virgil took him. <laughs> he went there, and, and so uh, it's it's they're being challenged by the ideas that are presented to them, and and a lot of them eat it up. They like it. And some of them are simply <laughs> challenged by it. Speaking of Dante, Divine Comedy is probably one of my favorite works ever. Mm. And in reading Inferno and, and Purgatory especially, you see this, this grasp of the human condition, mm -hmm. this understanding of sin, uh, because the, the, the punishments uh, coordinate with the sin or, or the... And so that has always struck me, just this profound sense of, of sin mm -hmm. uh, and his understanding of the human condition is great. Uh, with freshmen, when we read the, the Iliad, I mean, we talk a lot about love and war, and usually I'll pose the question to them, you know, was, was the Trojan War justified? And the answers are all over the place. And some are like, no, no, you're just fighting over a woman. And, you know, some, some of the kids are like, well, you know, I'll pose, usually pose the question, like, well, what is worth fighting over? And that's where they're, well, you know, actually, I kind of think it would be worth fighting. I mean, this guy's fighting to get his wife back. And these other people are fighting because they gave their word saying, yes, we'll help you get back your wife because she's so attractive that if someone takes her, we'll help you get her back. So, yeah, it's really interesting. Like some of the kids are like, well, no, actually, honor is something worth fighting for. And then, of course, I remind them of the honor code, and they're like, oh, okay, okay. We, it's a <laughs> trap. It was a trap. <laughs> but being struck by their courage, they're, yeah. they're having something worth fighting for. Yeah, and I think that's the conclusion this, all of the students come to, regardless how they get there, is yeah, there are things worth fighting for, and it requires courage, you know, boldness. Uh, to move forward and fight for what you believe in. And I think at this school, that's what we're teaching our students to do outside of the classroom, going off to college and beyond. And I think, yeah, it's a great, great discussion. And how do, how do they respond to a character like Achilles, who exits <laughs> the battle when he doesn't get his way? Well, um, it really depends on the students. Uh, some years, they look at him and they think, oh, to quote the students, oh, he's such a savage. Oh man, just he wrecks everything. And then there's some like hey, he's a big baby. He's you know he hardly fought in the war. And I remind like, well, he fought nine years previously. So <laughs> they kind of look at his absences. Oh, he barely fought. No, no, no. He he was involved. Uh, but a lot of them, uh, a good number of them, I would say, actually uh, don't see him as the hero. When I one of the questions I asked near the end of the book, I was like, who's the hero? Like, who's the ideal hero in this story? And it's 
Patroclus or Hector. Almost never, never anyone who's really read the story and thought critically about it, never do they say Achilles. Yeah, he's not the hero. It's, it's the person who fought and died for their home. So Paris and Achilles, No. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Which is kind of funny because I think, I mean, do you think that that's a sort of like a modern Christian interpretation of the Iliad? That, you know, would, would they say Achilles was the hero, you know? Are you saying would the ancients have seen Achilles as the hero? I mean, he's like his name is mentioned in the first two lines, right? Yeah, right. I mean, the rage of Achilles. Yeah, it's seeing the use of the anger and rage of Achilles. I mean, that is the central theme of the story. I would say, yeah, yeah. Um, And certainly, like you look at you know Babylonian epics and stuff like that, where I mean, people are. Uh, might and power, right? Yeah. For the Greeks, it was honor, and that that was the value, and that's what made you the hero. He wasn't mor- wasn't morals? He doesn't really. fight because his honor is harmed, right? Cr- mean, Christianity he, absolutely forced the definition of heroism to change for for anybody that encounters the idea, because yeah. it becomes a sacrificial act from that point forward. You are sacrificing yourself, even even if it's just your time, but maybe your life. Uh, in the service of something else. And a lot of the, the older texts, that, that idea is not present, uh, mm-hmm. but it starts creeping in around Beowulf. Once these cultures bump into Christianity, they're forced to reevaluate what heroism looks like, and that creates the need for something like chivalry. Yeah. Because, well, if I'm a warrior, my job is to bust heads, but I'm supposed to turn the other cheek. Mm-hmm. How in the world do I reconcile this? And, and, and you, you see the definition of hero in the heroic code having to grapple with this and change as, as, mm-hmm. as they bump into Christianity. And some students I've had, they'll, they'll want to look at Hector and like, yeah, but he ran away from Achilles. He was being a coward. He, he didn't want to face what was coming. And I was like, well, Jesus in the garden, right? Jesus mm-hmm. let this cut pass for me. He knew it was coming. He didn't want to do it, but he did it out of obedience. And ultimately, it was that sacrificial love that we see, whether it's Hector or Christ, uh, come forward and do what had to be done. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, great lessons to, to be learned from uh, ancient literature. So, Paul, I'm, I'm curious to follow up a little bit more with your, your questions about Achilles. Could you see Achilles as a heroic figure because he exits... This this conflict that maybe's not really worth fighting. Yeah, I, that's what I, I just wonder. You know, like, what, was he supposed to be the hero? And then we look back on it and think, oh, clearly he's not because he did stuff that we think isn't heroic, but maybe they thought it was heroic. I mean, um, you know, I, I'm just always kind of wonder what people actually thought of Zeus. <laughs> you know, because. In retrospect, he's not a good king or, or god, really. Right. You know, mm-hmm. but but he's he's the king of the gods. <laughs> I mean, he's the yeah. one they put on the above everyone else, and so it seems like maybe they're like kind of what we what Lewis is saying that maybe they went wrong in a different direction, and we can we can see that and say, oh, mm-hmm. actually, that was probably not the best kind of person to look up to as the king of the gods or the all father. You know. Yeah. Maybe that's his purpose, though. It's just the father things, like to, you know, procreate. Right, um, right. He certainly does that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that might be, that might have been like a, 
I don't know. I guess unmitigated procreation might have been a value, you know? <laughs> yeah. It, it is interesting, though, that, that we can sit back and think, well, maybe they went wrong in that direction. Mm-hmm. But you brought up earlier, Rick, where you talked about we would read the ancients and we see their uh, going out to war and battles and those sorts of things. And maybe we learn from them courage mm-hmm. sure. and that value. Maybe, maybe it's not just that they would look at us and say, uh, you, you write about sex far too much. Yeah. Uh, and the way you understand it, I, I think their value would have been similar to ours, but, but maybe we look at them and say, yes, maybe they went wrong here, sure. but they were <clears throat> courageous and they and, fought for something. And Lewis considered courage the primary value. He, he thought that is the virtue by which you acquire every other virtue. Uh, not that it's the highest, it doesn't compete with love or uh, charity, but if you don't have courage, you will never succeed in acquiring any of the others. You will fold when something hard comes your way. To truly love yeah. takes courage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. Uh, Paul, any, any examples from class that you can think of? Or, and you've taught these books a long time. What are, what are some of the themes that students kind of come back to that they're struck by? <laughs> Well, I was, I'm kind of thinking of two different things because um, this conversation brings to mind uh, Paradise Lost. That's the, we just finished reading that, and so I'm kind of, it's fresh in my mind. And it has, it has those, those different heroes, like the ancient, the heroes of the ancient sort of like value system, but then also Christian. Um, I know it sounds weird because the, the story takes place in the Garden of Eden, so that's pre-Christian, but um, Jesus shows up in Paradise Lost, actually, and pronounces redemption, and Adam and Eve kind of see, they actually see an entire, the entire history of human redemption, like basically the whole Bible, and even after, you know, like hmm. the establishment of the church and the second coming shows up in Paradise Lost, <laughs> like it's, everything is in this book. But, um, but it's kind of interesting because Milton sort of paints Satan as the typical Greek hero. Like he's the, you know, he looks like a classical sort of, you know, Achilles type character. Um, And that kind of messed people up, you know, or maybe people want to be messed up by it or let it mess them (laughs) up because, I mean, yeah, I think it was Blake, William Blake, a poet, said that um, Milton was at the devil's party and didn't know it. But I think he was purposefully misunderstanding what Milton was trying to do. And Milton's saying, look, this kind of, this kind of a hero is not the right kind of a hero. And all of those, that sort of like, you know, break the toys because you can't win the game kind of attitude is, is actually from, from Satan. Mm-hmm. Like that comes from hell. And then you have other, you have Adam and Eve actually kind of serve as the human heroes. They're kind of, they're kind of tragic heroes, but they both do offer themselves sacrificially for each other Mm. after Christ shows them that example. So you kind of have all four type, or I guess I say four because they're kind of different um, because Satan's kind of the, 
a typical ancient hero, and you've got the Christian hero of Christ, but he's kind of, kind of a superhero kind of a character, like he can do anything. And then you have these two human heroes who fall, but then also um, exhibit self-sacrificial love. And so, yeah, I think he was trying to, to grab all of them. <laughs> and, and while theologically there are things in Paradise Lost that would be, oh, sure. be questionable, yeah. Yeah. it is amazing how he captures, because I, I think we could argue, I would argue that Genesis... Through Genesis three, we are given the entire mm-hmm. story of oh, redemption. Yeah. yeah. In Genesis three twenty one, where uh, God makes a garment of clothes yeah. for Adam and Eve, which it's a sacrifice, mm-hmm. a we, sacrifice that is made in order to clothe them, and then we are clothed with the righteousness yeah. of Christ. And it, and He does that kind of like collapses time back over on itself because Genesis three fifteen, the Proto Evangelium, is mm-hmm. there. And Jesus is the one saying it to Adam and Eve mm. that, you know, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent and the serpent will bruise his heel. And then Milton kind of explains it and says, little did they know that the person who was actually going to die for them was telling them that hope right there. And then the next thing that he does is he kills an animal and makes skins for them. So it's like a pretty clear metaphor for you know, right. sacrificial, redemptive, vicarious. And it's Trinitarian, and it's... It, God likes foreshadowing. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, it, it emphasizes the value of, of humanity as the pinnacle of God's creation. Mm-hmm. So there's so much there in this work of, of ancient literature. Well, and even uh, to, go, to go into that a little bit further, the thing that kind of struck me this time reading Paradise Lost was, which I think is something that we sort of struggle with now, and Milton technically is a modern, right? Um, like early modern, but like he's mm. from the modern period, and um, he has a really strong um, rejection of Gnosticism um, because rightfully so. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, it, to be orthodox, you kind of have to. But the person who is the most Gnostic in the poem is Satan, because when he comes to he, he even uses the word incarnate. He comes to the snake, to, and he's going to use the, the material body of the snake to tempt Adam and Eve, and he's completely disgusted by having to inhabit or incarnate, he says incarnate himself in the slime of matter. Huh. And then you have the exact opposite of that with Jesus, who tells Adam and Eve, you know, this is the way your redemption is going to come about, is through the seed of the, of the woman, and he willingly incarnates himself and becomes a man, um, which I think is just anti-Gnosticism. You know, the spirit isn't inherently good and the body or the material isn't inherently bad, but like you said, he, he redeems it and brings it, you know, raises it up with him. Yeah, that's so, excellent. Yeah. That's excellent. Well, as, as we continue thinking about uh, these works of ancient literature, I'd like to hear from, from each of you, and it can be a work of literature, or it could be a, a theological work, Augustine or something. Um, for, you know, maybe we have listeners who maybe they haven't read a lot of ancient literature. What, what would be your go-to? Where, where would you point them? Uh, what, what's a good starting place? Ancient, ancient, like? It doesn't have yeah. to be ancient, ancient. <laughs> we'll just say old. We're talking about <laughs> old books. Get the <laughs> <No>. yeah. um, 
No, we're not going there. <laughs> Don't that part. Um, well, one book I do recommend uh, for for people who are skeptical about why at a Christian school we read pagan literature, um, I usually actually recommend From Achilles to Christ uh, by uh, Louis Marcos. But man, I I always I always t- explain to the students because I get a lot of. I get a lot of complainers uh, each year uh, about reading the Iliad. It's it's probably the the weightiest, I think, most difficult book they've had to read. And um, I always say, like, this is really where it all starts. Like, I mean, you could read Hesed, uh, Theogony, but I, I think that's that's a great place to start because then from there, then you have to read the Odyssey, and then from there, once you've read Homer, then you have to read Virgil, and then get into you know Dante and all the stuff you guys read. But I think, yeah. At least for me, I always, I always, yeah, starts with Homer. I, I think it, it goes without saying the Bible. Um, oh, wait, no, no, I changed my answer. <laughs> <laughs> the Bible. Earth policy yes. now. <laughs> uh, unlike Sean, I the, uh, no, um, I, I try to, I try to constantly evaluate what we are reading through that lens, and, and <clears> some of it. Is just set up to do that. When we start reading Boethius, before we read Boethius, we read some of the New Testament where it says, don't be deceived by philosophies. There are people who are so good at that that they can twist you into pretzels using logic. And the Bible says, don't play that game. So we want to look at Boethius through that lens because he's going to start twisting us into pretzels with logic. But if you constantly have some sort of touchstone you compare it to, then it's healthy and it's 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 rigorous. It's it's what you want. Um, the other thing I would say is any of the Arthurian literature. It's just good storytelling. Um, go back as far as you're comfortable with. Once, <laughs> once the language starts changing and gets weird, you found your niche. Um, but you know, start with Tennyson. Tennyson, I would think, would be very accessible. The the uh, Idols of the King. Um, but I loved that stuff when I was a kid. And nobody made me write an essay about it. I just read it because I liked the stories. Uh, and I think when you when you find something that speaks to you, keep going. It's mm. good. I think the two. I'm just trying to think back. Like, what did I read first? <laughs> you know. Right. And I think the two really old books that I read that kind of got me hooked on it was the Odyssey and the Republic, Plato's mm. Republic. Mm. Um, I don't know that I understood them at all the first time I read them, but definitely just the sense of wonder mm-hmm. that the Odyssey kind of um, ignited in me. Um, I mean, sometimes I know it doesn't always catch on on everyone, but yeah, that book kind of made me want to start reading more. Mm-hmm. older stuff I was really into um, J.D. Salinger at the time <laughs> and so you know it was just kind of like a a bucket of water to the face a fresh sea breeze yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a I like a sea breeze to the face Chesterton said the, the world will never lack for want of wonders mm. only wonder yeah right, right. And, right. and whether you're in the, the classical Greek era or the through the Renaissance, all, mm-hmm. all in between those, I they had a 
far greater capacity for wonder, it seems to me, than our own day and age mm -hmm. does. And uh, it's, it's one of the things that I find to be very sea breezy about them. Just, just yeah. their ability to uh, appreciate uh, not only the idea of looking forward to heaven, but looking at the world we're already in as a potential mm -hmm. heaven. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's it. one that I'll throw out, and and it's difficult, but it's Augustine's City of God, mm -hmm. and I think the reason for it, it, we've just come through a political season, and we're not going to comment on that, but <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of hyperbole that goes along with elections and that sort of you know, the most important election ever in our lifetime, and on both sides saying if if our opponent gets into power the world is falling apart and will crumble. And here is Augustine writing at the fall of Rome <laughs> saying Christianity's fine. <laughs> yeah. The church is fine. Uh, God is is still at work and doesn't need Rome in order to accomplish his purposes, which has played out in history. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and, and so I think that's one of those sea breezes in a time where it's easy to get worked up watching the news. To hear someone who lived through something far worse, yep. the fall of Rome, yeah. saying, it's going to be okay. We're going to be all right. All right, any, any other works you would, you would recommend? Uh, definitely the Bible. Just <laughs> that, that ship has sailed. Bible. That ship has sailed. Oh, it's uh, translation. Uh, oh, sorry. <laughs> Well, let, let me go real quick, Sean, to something you said earlier, because I think of, of us in the room, you teach the hardest books. Yes. Uh, it, it, part of it is because you're, you're also teaching it to freshmen. Right. So it's difficult material with new rhetoric schoolers. Um, and I know you've gotten this question, so it's a bit of a softball. Yeah. A student comes in and says, Mr. Harold... My mom read the Iliad in in college, and she hated it. <laughs> How do you respond to that student? And any any word you could give to parents as maybe an encouragement? Yeah, they've got their kids here. They're going to be reading these books. How would you encourage them to help their students? Well, one of the things. Uh, I mean, goodness, last quarter I had this conversation a few times in different different situations with students. Um, I first remind them, I said, we're preparing you guys for college and you're going to have difficult books to read in college. And one of the things that we're hoping with these books to teach you is critical thinking to think not just on the surface level, but really what's the author getting at? What's their biasness? What are they really trying to say? And how are we able to tackle these themes and un understand their worldview and how it relates to ours? And I said, honestly, I just... I've been in college classrooms where a professor will look at you and say, all right, so what's the author saying? And there's crickets because no one, most people today in college, at least the classes I was in, they couldn't answer that question. What's the author saying? Oh, <laughs> head down, you know, just hide in the trench and not answer. I said, we read these difficult books so that when you guys are in college and a professor asks you something, the question, what is the author saying? That's not a difficult question. You've had practice. You've, uh, you have worked it out in the gym of the classroom and you have uh, come to terms with this sort of thing and reading a difficult text is not hard. It's easy to you. And 
yes, we do hard things, but we also uh, are to be transformed through the renewing of our mind. And this is, this is spiritual worship that we're doing. So don't look at this and go, oh, it's hard, it's difficult. Well, it is difficult. It is hard. And you are fortunate enough that you're at a school that is going to hold you to a higher standard where you're, they're going to ask you to read what many would say is a college-level book, and you're going to be able to do it, and you're going to be all the better for it. And if you're able to discern the worldview of Homer, yes. you're going to be much better equipped to understand the worldviews you're being presented yeah. in the here and now. Mm-hmm. So that's a, it's another aspect of that. You're able to get it. You're able to understand it. You know how to dig in and really work at understanding something. And I, I also, I mean, I, I tell them too, I say, you know, and you're going to have, you're going to read more difficult books and things that build off of this. It's not, it's not a math class, but as we already kind of discussed, you know, like Dante, uh, Milton, like the themes and the content that we're talking about here is going to show up again. And yeah, you're going to read Plato uh, in Mr. Russell's class, and it's a difficult book. I've thought about adding <laughs> it, and I said, oh, wait, wait, it's ninth grade. I, No, no, no. Too much. Four or five books is more than enough for them because uh, they're, they're thick and they're, they're big, and I want us to take time to make sure we get it so that we can get through them. So, yeah. That's good. Have you guys had anything like that? Have you had that conversation? Uh, usually they, they don't even feel the need to invoke their mom. They just say, I've read 20 pages of this and I don't like it and I don't even know what's happening. And, um, you know, I usually, I usually try to take the high ground with it and say, Hey, look, um, whatever books you like to read, whatever you're listening to on the radio or, you know, online, whatever content you absorb. How much of it do you think is still going to be around and enjoyed by people in a hundred years? Mm. And they get crickets. And I say, why is that? And they go, well, that maybe it just wasn't good enough. And I say, well, 99% of literature, music, all the stuff dies. It, right. it doesn't last a century. Not everybody's the Beatles. Um, so what I am presenting to you has lasted a thousand years, which means countless generations have found value in it. They've wrestled with it, but they found something in it that spoke to them. And I think there's something in it that will speak to you too, if you'll give it a chance. And there's a glossary in the back for all the big words. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, not only have have people read it over the centuries, but when when Homer is written, when, when Homer's finally written down, the, the process of reproducing books was difficult. Yeah. So they not only found value in it, they thought it was important mm-hmm. to preserve. Sure. So I, I think we can glean from that that they're only choosing that which they really found wider valuable. Yeah. Right. That's that's good. Paul, do you ever get that? Yours are a little more modern. Paradise Lost is hard though. It is. We read it together though, which helps mm. like I read it out loud right um, I if I was asked the same question I would probably say I mean kind of getting at what you guys are, are saying but like why did you why didn't she like it you know <laughs> was it because of you know was it was it like because of some intrinsic immorality she disagreed with or was it you know were there lots of big words you didn't understand the plot line or no. you know what I mean because in that kind of you can kind of talk about okay so is it just because it's old? 
Um, <laughs> do you have some? Do you have actual qualm with it, or um, do you think it's just dumb? You don't want to do it. It's arbitrary work. <laughs> I I end up going uh, to church with a, a lot of freshmen. Uh, and I don't know who they are. They come out of the woodworks. You say, like, hey, you're Mr. Harold, right? Can I talk to you about the summer reading? And my wife's out. We'll be in the car waiting for you. <laughs> um, and because I don't run away from those conversations. And a lot of them, I just don't get it. It's so frustrating. And the biggest thing they complain about is I read for two, three pages about this guy's whole history and his family. And then he dies. It's so frustrating and dumb. <laughs> I was like, it is. But what do you think Homer, the author, is saying about war? Oh, yeah. And I think a lot of times it's just kind of needing that, uh, you know, thinking about it like the author is intentional about mm -hmm. this, right? Like these, the books that we teach are not just like, oh, you know, it kind of came to me and I just started writing stuff down. It, it, no, there's a lot of thought and intentionality uh, on the part of these uh, literary masters. And it's, I think, part of our job just to show and explain that to them. And once you do it, they're like, oh, okay. So now when they, when some of them would go back and read those, uh, re, re, you know, continue reading. Like, oh, I'm learning about this guy's history. It means he's probably about to die, and then he doesn't. They're like, oh, so now I'm really confused. I, um, yeah. I think there's got. I think a, a number of you have have hit on the same idea, but I think there is a big transition that happens at some point, maybe between logic school and a rhetoric school, where you move from what does the book say to what does it mean, mm -hmm. and that's a really different way of looking at yeah. things. And and the first time that any of us. Uh, make that leap. It's awkward, mm -hmm. uh, but I, it's it's a it's a really rewarding uh, it's a really rewarding endeavor, though. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm curious, just based on our conversation, and this isn't in anything I sent you preparing for ahead of time, but I'm curious your thoughts. Uh, I'll have students at times when we're reading a work. And they'll preface their comment on it by saying, "Well, I don't want to read too much into this." What are your all's thoughts on reading too much into a work of literature? I think there's a definite, I think everyone's kind of, uh, I guess, annoyed <laughs> <laughs> that, that things have to mean things. Yeah. Um, I know, I remember, um, I read, I think it's in Mystery and Manners by Flannery O'Connor, and someone, because uh, you know, we we're always trying to figure out what this means. And someone, uh, someone asked her, what's the hat symbolize in the violent buried away, you know, one of her novels. And she said, well, it doesn't symbolize anything. It's just a hat. <laughs> he just wears a hat, you know what right, I mean? Like, right, So, uh, like, you, like you were talking about authorial intent and, you know, why is, why is the, the writer putting this here? Um, it could just be an arbitrary thing. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's sort of like a, I don't know, I don't know, maybe annoyance is the wrong word. I, I think it's the perfect word. <laughs> yeah, just trying to have to think, you know, is this is a, purposeful or is this just kind of like an accident? There, there's a frustration story? that I think any anybody would have if you think that the author uh, will not simply say what they mean, an allegory in the, in the traditional sense, right. Tolkien and Lewis hated them mm -hmm. because everything in it represents something. Right. And I have had people, Mr. Poole, is this, 
does this really mean something or is this just an English teacher thing where you guys <laughs> want it all to mean something? And, and I always laugh, but I know, I know where they're coming from. Um, that I think the frustration is, well, if that's what they mean, why don't they say that? Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah. I, I do think, and I think the, the writing process, I think sometimes there might be meaning that the author doesn't even necessarily oh, yeah, sure. intend. Yeah. And I like to encourage mm-hmm. students, I'll tell students, don't worry about reading too much into it. Sure. Let's take the idea mm-hmm. that was generated by your reading that, and let's let's follow that's, that. That's, let's chase yeah. that. That's what Tolkien called applicability. Right. Yeah. yeah. Whether the author meant it or not, it's an interesting train of thought. Mm-hmm. I'll tell the students, I don't mind chasing rabbits as long as we catch some. Yeah. So I, let's go off on a rabbit trail if we can get something good out of it. I talked to Paul the other day during lunch, and he, as he often does, he was buried in a book during lunch. And I said, can I ask you, I, I, I realize I'm interrupting you, but can I ask you a question? And I think he said, you just did. And I said, <laughs> I said uh, okay, why do you read? Because you obviously love it. You love it more than food, because that's what you're doing on lunch. And I think I was eating at the same time. Yeah, okay, you were, you were in fairness. He had his mouthful. But um, I can it, even eat. It's the idea of you, you're you're meeting another person in that book. You're shaking hands with that author. You're wrestling with that. There's another mind present here from a, a long, long time ago, and you're interacting with that person. And I loved. He said it much better than I did, but I loved his I loved his answer uh, because that's what you want. That's what makes a book great. When something that author says, whether it was intended or not, resonates with something that's inside of you, and now there's this strange communication taking place between you and someone who's not physically present. Right. That's cool. Yeah, Alan yeah. Jacobs just wrote a book called Breaking Bread with the Dead. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's what he that's his his point of it is when when you read these old books you get to dialogue uh, with these people who are long gone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the benefit that comes from that. It's, it's a beautiful thing. I had a student criticize me a few years ago because they said, Mr. Harold, what do you read for fun? And I looked at my bookshelf behind me and I started <laughs> like, Homer, Virgil, <laughs> uh, Socrates, uh, I guess Pluto really, or Plato. Um, and they're like, no, but like modern books, like the, the modern stuff. I was like, it's just not as good. It's like, sure, I, I, I've read Tolkien and, you know, I'll, I'll read the Harry Potters because they're interesting and they're they're very much a part of Americana. I just say Twilight and that shuts them up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's just, it, when you, when you, I mean, I just, I've always loved stories. Like, even when I was a little kid and whether it's cinema or it's, it's a book, I just, story is king and the old stuff... It's just better. It's, it just is. Well, it's the foundation mm-hmm. of all of those other stories, right? Yeah. Do you, where, why do we, we have stories that are the hero's journey? Well, yeah. did you read Odyssey? Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. It comes from somewhere. And you can go back even, sure. even further in time than that. It's, you're, you're seeing the origin of these great stories. What's yeah. worth we, writing about? Yeah, right. we, we read uh, and discussed the, the myth of Theseus 
at the beginning of the year. And it's at one point, like, and he volunteered his tribute and he went. And they're like, oh, he's like Katniss Everdeen from Hunger <laughs> Games. I'm like, no, she is like Theseus. There you go, exactly. <laughs> Let's get the order right. Yes, yes. Well, uh, I appreciate you guys. We are, I didn't get through near what I wanted to talk with you all about, but I think I will be having you back because this was really enjoyable. Yeah. Any, any last words you guys have on reading old books? Was it Lewis who said for every one new book, you should read three old books? Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, if you can't do that, at least do one to one. It's a good ratio. He also said we we read to know that we're not alone, mm. and uh, I would en- I would encourage you to find some book that you love as much as Lewis loved all books. Mm. You will never be alone. That's a great word. Great word. Well, thank you guys for being here today. Yeah. I appreciate it. Thank you.